Hi, this is Jim Sloan, and you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Hello, you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. I'm Frankie Lewis, a writer for the Arts and Culture Desk with the Daily Emerald. This is our series, Spotlight on Science. In this series, members of the University of Oregon science community sit down and talk about their research and current events in their field in a language that we can all understand. Today, our guest is Avinash Singh, professor of neuroscience and member of the Takahashi Lab at UO. We spoke about his studies of barn owl neuronal performance, his transition from India to the United States, and more. Let's get to it. All right. Well, Avinash, thank you so much for uh, being here today. I really appreciate it. I've got a lot of questions I'm really curious about. Um, I know you have a background (laughs) in in microbiology and molecular biology, and you've kind of worked on like sensory behavior and physiology and fruit flies and in barn owls too. And I'm really curious about the barn owls because I know that's something you're really passionate about. So why do barn owls kind of make for good test subjects, and, and what are you doing with them? Well, owls are great because, um, well, for one, they're really cool animals. Um, but the other amazing thing about them is that they can hunt using sound alone. And so each animal, I mean, since you um, study ecology, you know that every animal flourishes only if it finds a perfect ecological niche for itself. And owls have found the time between sunrise and sunset. Right, So right. it's getting dark, but not truly dark. So, I mean, they can use their sense of vision, but what they're really famous for is being being able to hunt in complete darkness. Right. And, I mean, they sort of compete with bats uh, in the sense that bats also hunt at the same time, but buns, bats are air hunters. You know, they go for moths and insects. Ah, okay. And owls, uh, barn owls specifically, go for little rodents like voles and mm. mice. Mm. And um, so we've shown in experiments and labs that they can hunt in complete darkness. And now that's really interesting because unlike bats, they don't use sonar. So they just listen the way we do and are able to figure out very accurately where their prey is, um, which direction it's going in, and predict where it's going to be by the time they arrive. Hmm. And um, many times they need to hunt uh, many, many, you know, repeatedly in one night, um, find enough food for themselves and their offspring. Right. Um, I think it's so interesting that they, they basically just have supersonic hearing. They don't use anything really ex- extra like that, bats do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, um, the um, you know, there's a lot of cool things about bats I mean, because they evolved to hunt using sound. So their feathers are very quiet. Mm-hmm. So if you hold a, you know, say a pigeon feather in one hand and flick it up and down, you'll hear a whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. Right. But if you do that with an owl feather, you hear nothing. Yeah. So not only do they hunt using sound, but their prey can't hear them. Right, exactly. And so that makes them really effective. The rare times I've seen owls in the wild, you you can only see them. You can't hear them at all. They just kind of go right through. Exactly. You just just notice them when they just fly past. Yeah, exactly. And what are you kind of looking at specifically, or what connections do you hope to make from your barn owl research to uh, human subjects? Well, they, um, so because they can hunt using sound alone, that makes them excellent subjects for studying the kind of stuff we're interested in, which is um, the physics and the neurobiology of sound source representation. Mm. So where is the sound coming from and how does the animal know which sound to tie to its target? Right. You know, uh, because um, 
there's a lot going on in the outside world, in the natural world. There's wind blowing, um, there are trees, there's rustling, there's other animals. And among all of that, the mouse is able to, uh, the bat is able to pick up a little animal squeaking or walking through grass mm-hmm. and bounce on it. And I mean, it doesn't even need to hear it while it's attacking. It just needs to hear one short burst. And that's mm-hmm. enough to tell wow. it where the animal is. Mm-hmm. And it bounces on it with its talons. And, you know, unlike eagles, um, owls don't tear their prey. They just swallow it whole. And then like a few hours later, they spit up what's left. They pellet um, the remains, like the skin and wow. bone, which is kind yeah. of disgusting, but it's great because right. in nature, we can tell whether they are getting enough food by looking at their stomach contents, but, but right. what they've coughed up right. as a pellet. That's that's fascinating. And I think those owl pellets, I remember, I think I did a, a summer camp once where we, we did a similar thing where we right. they had some owl pellets for us and they're like, look, you can see all the things. And we were grossed out at first. You know, they didn't tell us until after uh, right. what, what, what they were. Yeah, exactly. Are. Right. Yeah, yeah. So you can see, you know, I mean, for example, um, normally their preferred prey, like I said, is little mammals. Mm. So if you tease apart a pellet, you should find skulls of mice and voles. But if they are um, really having a hard time, then they'll start eating other things like insects. Right, uh, but usually they won't. They'll just eat, eat the um, eat you know little mammals, and um, they love the heads for some reason. So they <laughs> <laughs> rip the head off oh. and swallow it first. <laughs> Brutal. But um, and I mean uh, the reason we're interested in that is that as as we grow older, we lose a little bit of our sense of hearing. Um, you know, um, it's said that humans uh, can hear sounds between twenty hertz and twenty kilohertz. 20,000 hertz Mm -hmm. in terms of sound frequencies. Mm -hmm. But that's only true for very young people. So Mm -hmm. when you reach, you know, your early teens or so, especially in the modern world where the world is really noisy, Mm -hmm. you start getting exposed to louder sounds and you start losing your higher end frequency here. Mm -hmm. So so in your early 20s, you've probably lost, you know, 18 to 20 kilohertz. And when you get to your 30s, you've lost a little more. And by the time you reach 40 or 50, you can only hear, you know, say 12,000 or 13,000 hertz and below. And so every time you get exposed to loud sounds, uh, because of the physics of the middle ear, what happens is that you damage your high frequency hearing. Hmm. It doesn't matter what the sound is. Hmm. Um, it could be a low frequency or high frequency sound. But just being exposed to that intensity causes you to lose your high frequency hearing. Hmm. And that has important effects. Um, and specifically what it does is that it makes it harder for older people to hear in a noisy environment. Mm. So if you were to take them to a quiet room and test their hearing thresholds, those would probably be normal or close to normal. Right, right. And they can hear you fine when it's quiet. But the moment you take them to a restaurant, they suddenly have problems in comprehending what you're saying. Right. And the idea is, apart from the fact of trying to figure out how the brain works, um, this is the practical aspect of designing better hearing aids, trying to figure out how we can compensate for that sort of high-frequency hearing loss. Interesting. Um, But from the basic science perspective, um, the easiest way to access the brain is to have a controlled set of stimuli that we can deliver to the brain. So, um, you know, um, that's the the principle of sensory neuroscience is that um, we want to know what the brain does. Um, And we have an input, which in my case is sounds, 
and we have an output which is behavior so for example the behavior could be as simple as me asking you to push a button every time you hear a sound mm. okay and then i can control the parameters of the sound i can make the room really quiet i can change the frequency of the sound i can change where the sound is coming from mm. and that's our input and what our readout of what the system is doing is behavior of one sort or another mm. you know either voluntary behaviors like button pushing or training the owl to go to one direction versus another or involuntary behaviors like orienting so owls because they're used to tracking their prey if you play a sound out of one location they'll instinctively reflexively as it's called although it's not a reflex mm -hmm. they'll turn to look at that sound um, they'll aim their head towards it right and that's what we do too uh, you know if some if something if one of those frames on the wall were to drop suddenly yeah all of us would turn to look uh, at it yeah. right and that's something called the orienting reflex or the mm. orienting response. And so that's what I found in owls was that while I was trying to do other sorts of interesting behaviors, I found that every time I um, the owl heard something unexpected, and it could be, you know, someone walking the corridor yeah. and slamming GTF the GTF drops the, exactly. the the research you've been working on. Up. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just well, kidding, just happens. kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. drop stuff all the time, yeah. you know. <laughs> and, and what will happen is that the owl's eyes would brighten, the pupils would right. dilate. And that, it turned out, is something called the orienting response, which, you know, later on I used to study in owls and which led to some of the human work that I'm doing. Mm. But so basically that's the idea is that by carefully controlling the stimulus that we are giving, carefully controlling stuff like intensity, the frequency, uh, the envelope of the sound, how intense the sound is and how it varies over time, right. we can try to understand, firstly, how that impacts behavior, what are the changes that... Um, the owl or the person who's your subject can detect. Hmm. And then uh, the advantage of using animals is that you can actually study what's going on in their brain and try to figure out how the brain decodes information, how that information is used to arrive at a decision, and how that decision is ref uh, reflected in the animal's behavior. Wow. Have you thought of any other animals that have similar responses like the barn owl does? Actually, all animals have the orienting response, right. including us, like right. I said. Um, so um, the orienting response, interestingly, is uh, another one of those things that was discovered by Pavlov uh, uh, after right. he got his Nobel Prize. Right. Right? His Nobel Prize was for the working of the digestive system. Hmm. And then his uh, Nobel Prize address, which I would find remarkable, is he got a Nobel Prize and then he spent that entire lecture talking not about what he had done, but what he wanted to do, which is to figure out how we respond as humans to things that are going on outside the world. Mm. So how does our brain actually respond to interesting things that are going on? Interesting. And uh, this was in the 1920s. Right. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, to have the, the foresight, I think, to, to see ahead to that stuff is really it's is interesting. It's quite amazing. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. fact that you had that. Well, anyway, um, maybe moving away from your research a little bit. What's something happening uh, currently in in like modern neuroscience that you really find exciting, or you you see as groundbreaking, or you're 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 ready to hear more from? Well, I mean, one of the most interesting uh, developments in the recent past is our ability to look at what's happening in the human brain. I mean, till about say ten or fifteen years recently, the the big dividing line between animal neuroscience and human neuroscience was that in animal neuroscience we could do physiology, we could figure out how the mm -hmm. brain was responding. 
And in humans, that wasn't that easy. The only, the only way we had to find out what was happening in the brain was by putting electrodes on the scalp and doing EEG, which let us know what large parts of the brain were doing or, or right. large groups of cells were doing, but we couldn't look at smaller groupings of cells. Mm, okay. um, but nowadays, using functional MRI or fMRI, uh, we can actually see what's happening in much smaller volumes of the brain. And and what's that process like? What does so that, that, what does that entail? So that process is basically um, you put a subject into a magnet. Um, it's a powerful magnet, and it has to be really powerful because if you're sticking a human being in there, then in the center of that giant magnet, there has to be a lot of magnetic intensity. Mm. And so it's really easy to make a very small, very powerful magnet, but it's really hard to make a really big, really powerful one. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you, you put a subject in there, and it turns out that um, what, the F, what the MRI can tell you is about how much oxygen is in the blood. Okay. okay? And so as our uh, neurons fire, uh, that uses energy. As our neurons become active, they require energy. That energy is supplied by oxygen, and so blood rushes to that part of the brain. Uh, okay. And so what fMRI tells you is how much each part of the brain is consuming oxygen. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So it's an indirect measure of activity. It's, right. it's not like in animals where you can go and record from neurons. Right. Right. But um, we still get a better indicator of what the brain is doing. And so right. now we can look at parts of the brain that respond to specific, um, you know, sound stimuli or light stimuli or um, look at parts of the brain that are involved in motor responses. And that's the big thing. And then in animal research, what's happened is the availability of electronics and, and microengineering has given us the ability to record from hundreds of cells at the same time. So now wow. you can you have these little chips which you basically put on the surface of the brain, and those are like you know 128 different electrodes, and you can sample a large population of the brain as opposed to recording from a few cells at mm -hmm. a time. And both of these uh, systems have given us access to functioning of the brain, which is just technically not possible a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. And and again, the availability of computers has allowed us to actually process that data yeah. um, in ways that was just not even possible 10 years ago. Yeah. And there's obviously a lot of you know ethical ramifications with studying the brain, too. Um, I don't know if you've ever run into some of those because it's, you know, I've, I've held a, a, obviously a dead brain once, but sure. um, it's, it's so eerie to actually kind of see it as like, this is the thing that was a, a person. And have you ever had moments like that where you're like, wow, I'm... This is literally a person's entire personality and livelihood that I'm studying right now. Absolutely. I mean, the, the biggest, um, you know, what used to be a philosophical debate, but it's more or less settled to some degree now, is, um, you know, what's the mind and what's the brain? Mm -hmm. And these days, most people would agree that what we call our mind or our personality resides inside our skull. Right. You know, that... Um, um, you know, when you move away too far from science into philosophy and religion, then, of course, you get into questions of, you know, whether we have a soul or so on. But right. leaving those aside, I think most people would agree that what we call our mind, when, when we experience reality, we experience it because something that happens in the outside world causes changes to our nervous system. Hmm. And that is more or less um, a, a non-controversial point at this, at this time. Um, but yeah, I mean, when we um, work with human subjects, even when we work with animal subjects, we, mm -hmm. we always have to think carefully of the ethics of whatever it is that we are doing. Yeah. 
Um, it's not, um, you know, I mean, some of the animals I work with live for 16, 17 years, but that's mm -hmm. because I do behavior. A lot of my work is behavioral work. Right. Uh, but a lot of neurophysiology work ultimately will um, result in, you know, causing some sort of um, harm to the animal. I mean, animals will die. Human subjects um, is always a problem because most of the people I work with are either babies or, adult, you know, undergraduates. That's, <laughs> yeah. what, that's what you get when you are in a university doing human research. Mm. And the question is, you don't want to be coercing them, right? So I, I don't want to be going to my class and saying, okay, I'll give you extra credit if you participate in my experiments. Right, yeah. And uh, so, a conf and, slight conflict of interest there. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and um, um, a lot of my work these days is with babies, and we have to be careful that um, in, in the case of babies, you cannot really ask them, are you okay doing this research? But right. you leave that to the parents to decide. And right. of course, you you know, we, we stop when the babies get unhappy. You don't want to um, exploit anybody who's not in a position to be able to decide right. for themselves right. yeah. whether they want to take part in research or not. Yeah. But I mean, my work isn't, doesn't, doesn't really deal with the areas of things like cognition or uh, other higher brain functions. Mm -hmm. um, not directly, at least. Um, yeah. what, what I'm looking at is how we perceive the world around us right, and right, right. at a slightly lower level at the sense More behavioral than, than... And that uh, doesn't, you know, um, it, it brings into mind the sort of uh, conflicts and uh, ethical questions that you're talking about. But yeah, yeah broadly as, as a field, right, um, right. as we get closer and closer to psychology, I mean, these days, yeah. a lot of the neuroscience research in the university is done at the Department of Psychology. Yeah, Some of the exactly. faculty are, so the, uh, the, the University of Oregon has organized its research into what it calls institutes, which are different from teaching units. So I, I work in the Institute of Neuroscience, which right. has faculty from mathematics, um, uh, biology, and psychology. And all, the question always is, you know, um, as you get closer and closer to psychology, as you study the effects um, of what you're doing on the brain, and you're looking at patients rather than right. subjects, then... Um, you get really close to those ethical lines, yeah. the kind of questions you were asking. Definitely. Um, I think you put that really well. Um, I'm curious also a little bit into your personal background. Um, you said you were born and raised in India. Um, yeah. And so what was what was your transition to the, to the U.S. like? And maybe as a follow-up, how is scientific research different in India compared to the U.S.? Well, I... The transition was pretty easy. I was um, really fortunate to be one of um, the small set of really privileged people in India. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, uh, if you look at it from the financial perspective, we weren't exactly rich. Um, but because of my father's and my uh, mother's background, you know, one was an army officer and the other was a, um, a, a school principal. Mm -hmm. Um, I had access to great education. I learned three languages growing up. Um, I learned English when uh, I was in, you know, nursery school. Right. So um, that made the transition very easy when we grew up. India is surprisingly, um, urban India is an extremely Anglophilic country. We were a British colony until right. very recently. Yeah, yeah. And so a lot of, for example, the Indian, the English literature we read is actually English literature. Yeah. Not... You know, for example, books written in English by Indian authors. Yeah. Um, most of that curriculum is as was designed by the British. So we, you know, read a lot of Shakespeare and a lot of romantic poets and all that, and yeah. and some American authors. So 
conceptually, the, the, the shift wasn't really that difficult. I mean, the biggest difference between the U.S. and India is the social life. Hmm, okay. You know, in India is, to some extent, like Europe. Um, life doesn't stop at 6 p.m. <laughs> Dinner is later in the day and everybody's out on the streets. Yeah. And, and what was really difficult to get used to in the U.S. was the fact that, um, especially a small town like Eugene, yeah. um, really nothing happens after 6. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that was difficult. Um, in terms of science, I mean, I guess the biggest difference is the availability of funding. Okay. Um, uh, things are a little better in India, but... When your resources are limited, as they are in many developing countries, you have to choose where to apply that money. Mm -hmm. And many countries um, that are in the developing world, um, I think wrongly, uh, but they tend to focus their money, their dollars on um, what they call applied research. So medical research, engineering research, and not so much on basic research. And, mm. and that has a huge problem because... Your applied research can only go so far without some basic underpinnings of basic research. I think that's an interesting thing to, to touch on. What Maybe explain to some of the listeners the difference between some of the basic research and applied research. Because that's I think people really get those confused a lot. Well, I mean, in our context, for example, the basic research is on how living organisms function. Some of the most remarkable um, advances in biology have happened by accident. Okay, mm, people right, have studied, right. uh, people have discovered um, anti-cancer drugs because they started, uh, you know, trying to investigate high blood pressure, for example. Mm -hmm. um, people have found, um, uh, you know, how uh, things that, for example, contribute to cancer have come out of research into completely different um, subsets of how like the cell works. Antibiotics like, and transport, that whole thing, yeah. How, yeah. how things are transported from one, how cells stick to the substrate mm -hmm. has told us very important things about cancer research. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that happens by accident yeah. because the U.S. government funds basic research and out of that come remarkable discoveries that help us progress in terms of healthcare. But if you don't invest the money in that sort of basic research, if, for example, all you do is you tell your people, go find antibiotics and not accidentally discover them as a, yeah. as a consequence of yeah. other research, that makes it really difficult and progress really slow. Yeah. And, and I mean, that's the crunch India is facing. I mean, in some in material research, for example, designing a, you know, a new railway engine, for example, a train engine, right. it, it, that requires advances in materials, mm -hmm. which we don't have in India, the, the basic underpinnings of. So every few decades, we go and buy a new locomotive from, you know, Sweden or somewhere, and then we improve it gradually. And then beyond a point, that's it. You, you yeah. get a wall. And that sort of wall can only be broken by what are essentially accidental discoveries. Yeah. And so what you do is you find good scientists and you give them money and you let them do great research. And sometimes um, they will find things that make science leap forward. Awesome. Um, and I think just kind of wrapping up here, maybe what's maybe, when did you know you wanted to be a neuroscientist and what was going on in your life at the time? Like when did you really kind of find a find your passion for this? I think I found it as an undergraduate um, when I was um, trying to, when we were trying to read about anatomy and physiology. And in those days, you know, um, about 30 years ago, um, we didn't know nearly as much as we do about the functioning of the brain. And to me, it was always interesting that you could have diseases that are caused by microorganisms like rabies, 
for example, that produces changes of behavior. You know, dogs become hydrophobic and go and bite other dogs. Mm-hmm. And so how is it that you have a microorganism that infects an animal and now the animal's behavior has changed? And that was the sort of thing that drove me towards behavior. Um, and um, even now, I mean, most of my work is concentrated on trying to figure out different types of behavior. So, for example, one of the things I'm working on is a test to diagnose hearing impairments in babies, which uses my pupil dilation assay. Mm -hmm. And the idea there is, um, you know, it's really difficult to test hearing in young babies. And so what we do is we play sounds to the babies, and if they can hear them, the pupil dilates. It's a pretty simple test. Mm. And it's all come out of my interest in how is it that events in the outside world or changes in your body that are chemical or microbiological, how is it that those can cause changes in behavior, which we used to think, or I used to think with my limited knowledge, was something to do with the mind. Mm -hmm. And all the stuff that we are talking about is something to do with your body and how Mm -hmm. the two interact. Mm -hmm. Um, And then maybe last question. Um, Why should people care about neuroscience or science in general, for that matter? Well, that's uh, that's a kind of question which, you know, people are often asked and there really is um, no good answer to it other than the fact that science has led to huge improvements in the way we live, mm-hmm. um, the way we perceive the world. I mean, science doesn't make promises like, you know, for example, um, religion does. It, science is not going to make you feel better about your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not going to help you go to sleep easier. Unless you're of a particular bent of mind, like many scientists are, they have the joy of discovery. What science does do is it tells you that here's the best picture of the world as it is today, Mm -hmm. as we can give it to you. This is the truth as we can discover it about the universe. Sometimes that truth really helps. It helps us live better lives. It helps us live longer and healthier lives. It gets rid of disease and many cases poverty. Um, what we really need to do as scientists is to be able to better communicate and better interact with people. I mean, it's not just a question of dumbing down information for the common man. I I think plenty of people are pretty smart. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think scientists as a a set are smarter than people who um, do any other job. It's just that we do a different job. Mm -hmm. And what we've got to do is to learn how to talk to people who are not scientists. And I I don't think we do a really good job of that yet. Um, and, and, And like I said, it's not that we want to simplify information. It's that we need to communicate to people why is it that we do. And the fact that very often interesting things like, you know, the hearing test that I've come up with came out as an accidental discovery mm-hmm. from my barn owl basic research. And, and that's the sort of thing that people need to understand is mm-hmm. that you in science, you cannot make progress if you work towards a goal. It's not like construction. Mm -hmm. Um, Many times you strike out in unexpected directions. It's more like finding gold rather than making something. And and sometimes, you know. Finding gold when you were trying to fish even. Like that's like, you know. It's an accidental discovery and you only find it if you're smart and you're aware and you're looking for Mm -hmm. unexpected things. Um, And and, um, uh, that's what we need to tell people is that what we think of as basic research isn't useless. It's, it's where all the interesting things come out of. And, and to engage people by not talking down to them and assuming that they're stupid or that they are incapable of comprehending what we do. That, mm. That's not the case at all. Yeah. Well, Avinash, thank you so much for coming on today. I think this was an awesome conversation. I think the listeners will really 
have fun with this. So. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to talk to you. Of and course. Um, I really like your podcast and I hope um, you continue and you stick with it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Big thanks to Professor Avinash Singh from the Takahashi Lab for being our guest today. I'm Frankie Lewis. If you'd like to recommend a member of the UO Science community for us to interview, leave us a comment on SoundCloud or at thedailyemerald.com. The music in this episode is Zombie Disco by Six Umbrellas, which we found on freemusicarchive.org. To hear more from the Emerald Podcast Network, you can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and listen to these episodes right on the Daily Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Thanks for listening.